You're listening to Intergenerational Politics, hosted by Jill Weinbanks and Victor Shi. We have conversations with amazing guests on the issues facing our country today and ask the questions all generations want answered. We hope you enjoy this episode, and once you're finished listening, leave us a rating or a comment to support future episodes of Intergenerational Politics. This is Victor Shi, a freshman at UCLA, the youngest elected delegate for Joe Biden, and one of the co-hosts of this podcast. And I'm Jill Wine-Banks, the co-host who met Victor while we were both candidates to be Biden delegates. Uh, I'm also an MSNBC legal analyst and former general counsel of the U.S. Army and the wearer of Jill's pins. And today I debated between wearing a pin in honor of Women's History Month, which, of course, I am celebrating every day this month. Uh, but decided to go with a justice pin because it seemed more appropriate for our very special guest today. Yes, for sure. Um, Today we are joined by former FBI Director James Comey. Um, Before being appointed as FBI Director in 2013 by President Obama, James served as U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York and as Deputy Attorney General, both under the Bush administration. As FBI Director, he saw the investigation of Hillary Clinton's emails and later the ties between the Trump campaign and Russia. Uh, Both investigations drew sharp criticism from Democrats and Republicans. And in May in 2017, he was fired by then-President Trump, a fact that he learned about from television reports while he was speaking to agents in the Los Angeles field office. Since then, uh, he has written two books, A Higher Loyalty, Truth, Lies, and Leadership, and his latest one, Saving Justice, Truth, Transparency, and Trust. We are looking forward to talking with him. So thank you so much for being here, Jim. It's great to be here with both of you. Thank you. And I want to get right to it because... Some of the hardest questions that you have been asked over the years come from the fact that you faced wrath from both sides of the political spectrum. Uh, So let's start with the first episode, which involved the Clinton emails and how you handled them. Democrats, of course, argue that that cost Secretary Clinton the election. And I've heard you speak in Chicago uh, at the Ideas Fest uh, about your book, It was the first book, and shortly after, A Higher Loyalty came out. Uh, And I'd like you to tell our audience about your um, that book and what you say about your decision to close the investigation into the emails, and then your decision to announce and uh, reopen the investigation just days before the election, and focusing mostly on the public announcement of that. Sure. No, it's an important question. And I think just one minor correction, I think we actually angered both Republicans and Democrats in the course of the Clinton investigation because the Republicans thought that we had given her a pass and then the Democrats complained about decisions that we made in late October. And and just because everybody's mad at you doesn't mean you're right, but I think in this circumstance we made the best judgments that we could. And let me see if I can explain it very, very briefly. We received the investigation which focused on whether Secretary Clinton as Secretary of State had mishandled classified information. We received it from inspectors general from the intelligence community and the State Department in the summer of 2015 and they made a public referral so the world knew that this had been sent to the FBI. And we opened a criminal investigation because it seemed on its face like, yeah, Secretary Clinton had treated classified information in a way that was impermissible. That is, she had talked about classified stuff on an unclassified email system. Often the 
conversation focuses on the fact that it was her personal server. It really didn't matter. And what matters when you're talking about classified information is, did you talk about it on a phone or speak about it on email in the appropriate forums? Did we use a classified device to be able to talk about secret stuff? And she hadn't, she'd used unclassified email to talk about a bunch of classified stuff. And so the question as the investigation began was, what was she thinking when she did that? Because nobody had ever been prosecuted for sloppiness or for unintentionally talking about something in a place they shouldn't have. That just happens too often for it to be prosecuted. Instead, what the Department of Justice has always looked for is, is there evidence that this person knew they were doing something that they shouldn't be doing? And so we set out to see if we could find that evidence. And after a year of looking, we didn't find any evidence like that. We found a lot of sloppiness, a lot of secret stuff, both secret and top secret, discussed on an unclassified email system, which you just can't do, but not anything that rose to the level of a criminal prosecution. And to prosecute Secretary Clinton, you would be treating her differently than everybody else. And you can't do that and run a justice organization. So we got to the end of the investigation and the hard part was gonna be convincing the American people that we'd done it in the right way. That we had investigated one of the two presumptive candidates for president of the same party as the president in office and the attorney general. And we had said, no, there's no case here, but in a credible, reliable, trustworthy way. That was gonna be the trick. How do you convince people in a politically polarized world that you did things for the right reason? And the answer is transparency. The Department of Justice has always offered transparency when it doesn't bring a case, if that's in the public interest. And here it sure was in the public interest. When you talk about transparency, um, I would focus on the very well-known rule, which is you never comment on an investigation. You never announce that you're investigating, and so you wouldn't announce that you are closing it. So what do you mean by transparency in, that, in the context of an investigation? Yeah, good question. There's no never, there's no rule that says you never talk about an investigation. In fact, the Department of Justice policy has an explicit exception for confirming investigations when it's in the public interest to reassure the public to explain activity. And then when you close an investigation, there's a long-standing norm that in, in almost every case, you don't say anything. But when there's a public interest, as there was, for example, after Ferguson, Missouri, or after allegations that the IRS have been targeting Tea Party activists, the Department of Justice has long offered details to explain a decision. And so you're so right, though, about the general rule. We didn't say anything about the Clinton investigation, even though it had come to us publicly for three months. And then we confirmed simply the fact that we were conducting it. And then we said nothing until it was completed. And this struck me, and I think struck the Department of Justice as well, as a circumstance where the norm of providing details when it matters most was in play here and that people needed to be assured that this decision was made for the right reasons, just like the decision not to prosecute anybody for the killing of Michael Brown and Ferguson, for example. And so it was in the lane, the normal lane of the Department of Justice to offer this kind of transparency at the close of an investigation. And the thing I did that was not normal, that was a breach of norms and policies was I stepped away from the attorney general so that rather than standing next to the attorney general and offering the transparency, I did it separately from the attorney general for reasons that are complicated and we can talk about it if you want. But the bottom sure, line- Sure, go ahead and talk about that. Sure. I made a judgment that, I think even in hindsight, is a reasonable judgment. People can see it differently. 
with it, I couldn't credibly offer transparency to the American people at that point in time, standing next to the Attorney General. There were a variety of reasons for that, but most prominently, that in just the days before we finished the investigation, she had met privately with former President Bill Clinton on an airplane on a tarmac in Phoenix, Arizona, and sort of set the world on fire with that meeting and announced that she wouldn't step aside from the investigation, which would have been the appropriate thing to do. Instead, she said, I won't step aside, but I'll accept Jim Comey's recommendation and that of the career prosecutors. And at that moment, I thought, you know, I never imagined I'd be in this situation, given where we are and the importance of public trust and that she won't step aside. I think the best thing to do is for me to do something unprecedented, which is offer the transparency separately. And so I did and was criticized by thoughtful people for that. It was a close call and I accept the criticism. That's the hardest decision I had to make, actually the closest. But that ended the investigation, right? We're done. We've assured the American people this work has been completed and in a good way. And then I get summoned all summer long of 16 to Capitol Hill to defend the work, as does the attorney general. And we both defend the work and say, this is over. This is done. Go away. You can trust us. It's done. It's done. It's done. Okay. Now come with me to October 27th. I walk into my conference room and find out that not only is it not done, but it's not done in a hugely significant way because we have found, for reasons that also are complicated, but on the laptop of a guy named Anthony Weiner, who was married, although estranged, to Hillary Clinton's significant aid, top aid, we have found hundreds of thousands of Hillary Clinton's emails. And I remember when they told me that number, it almost knocked me back in my chair because we had only ever found thousands of Secretary Clinton's emails because she had culled her emails and produced about 30,000 of them to the State Department and deleted the rest. And just the number hundreds of thousands knocked me back. And then they knocked me back farther by saying, and we may have found the missing emails from her first three months as Secretary of State, which is when she was using not her personal server, but an unclassified BlackBerry to email. And if there was going to be evidence that established she knew she was doing stuff she shouldn't do, it would likely be at the beginning. Mm -hmm. And so my team said, we found hundreds of thousands of emails. We found tens of thousands of BlackBerry emails. The result of this investigation could change, and we can't review them in time before the election. What do you do? Mm -hmm. Why couldn't they do that? Because they ended up actually doing that. Yep. Yeah. The reasons they gave me were that we didn't have the capability in the FBI to deduplicate electronically on our classified networks, which is where these materials had to sit because we knew they contained classified information. And we couldn't bring in recruits like we would to look for a gun in a hayfield because whoever reviewed the emails needed to know context because they were looking for classified information for misuse of an un unclassified email system. So it had to be people with context and there were only about six or eight of those. So that team of people had to actually read each of these emails night after night after night. And they said there just aren't enough hours in the day to finish before the election. So, so let me ask you a couple follow-up questions there. One, um, how did you know, you said you knew immediately that there was classified information there. How had you determined that? When I say you, I'm talking about, I, I assume it wasn't that you physically sat down, but no. that an agent reported to you. Yeah, it actually, before then, the inspectors general referred it to the FBI because in their review of the emails that Secretary Clinton had produced to the State Department, 
as part of a FOIA uh, process, they had seen that on the emails there were topics talked about that they knew were classified, top secret. Right, no, but I'm talking now about the BlackBerry. Uh, I, I'm sorry, not the BlackBerry. I'm talking about Anthony Weiner. His computer had emails that were addressed to his wife. And you're now saying this was the big new thing and that it contained classified information. And you knew that on October 27th. And I'm just asking how you knew that there was classified uh, information on Anthony Weiner's computer. I'm sorry. If I said that, I misspoke. We didn't know what the content was of these on the computer because we hadn't gotten permission as of October 27th to review them. They've been obtained by the FBI in a different investigation. Right. So to look at them, we need to get a search warrant to establish probable cause that they would contain evidence of the mishandling of classified information. A fair bet, given the, the number of conversations that Secretary Clinton had had on her email system involving classified topics, and we could tell that the emails weren't all addressed to um, Weiner's wife, and a large number of them were Secretary Clinton's emails that had been forwarded, that were whom and Abedin had been copied on them, forwarded to that address, but we didn't know for sure. And the point of the investigation was, let's see what's on these and what they tell us about her um, intent. Right. And, and I thank you for that, because, and maybe I misheard you, but I thought you said that on the 27th, you knew there was classified information there, and that's why I was asking. But um, okay. It turned out there was. Yeah. And but no new classified emails were in that trove of the hundreds of thousands. Right. And that's the important part. So you did do that and you did it quickly enough that it was over before the election. Um, right. so but on, on that day, um, you decided you could not possibly finish it in time. But then you did. So how did you finish in time? The. Wizards at the FBI's Operational Technology Division wrote software for the classified network that allowed them to deduplicate electronically. And so they cut down hundreds of thousands to thousands. And then the team of six to eight people just round the clock read emails, read emails, read emails. And they finished by the Sunday. election was on a Tuesday. They finished by the Sunday morning before the election and then asked to meet with me, and I met with them. And they said, look, we found lots of new emails that we'd never seen before. We found classified content in emails, but no new uh, classified content. And so it, and nothing different that reflects on her intention. And so it doesn't change our view of the investigation. And I was worried that it was their exhaustion talking, so I pressed them. And they said, no, we're exhausted, but we don't see anything new here that changes our view. And I said, well, then I've got to communicate that to Congress because I had decided back on October 28th, so the week before, that we had to choose between two terrible options, one of not speaking and the other speaking, that we had to speak and tell Congress we'd reopen an investigation that we had testified under oath repeatedly was done, done, done. And we knew that testimony was false now. We had to correct that. Having done the work now and finished before the election, to my surprise, I had to tell Congress again. And so, again, we sent a very short letter to Congress saying we've finished our review and it hasn't changed our uh, conclusions about the investigation. And so there was a period of time between what day did it become public that you were reopening the case? The 28th of October. Okay, so from October 28th until two days before the election, uh, during early voting, which is a significant 
even in that year, uh, a significant number of people were using early voting. It impacted how people voted. Uh, for anyone who doubted, you know, saying, I don't know, I don't know about this, I'm not sure I can trust Hillary, this was what they needed to say, okay, I'm not voting for Hillary. What were your feelings during that period where you knew that you were having an impact on, on the outcome? Well, I actually don't know. I didn't know then and still don't know, actually, that I had an impact on the, on the outcome. And I think the 2020 election raises really interesting questions because the, the late-breaking voters, again, broke overwhelmingly for Trump when I was home in my pajamas. So I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know exactly whether we had an impact, but I'm not trying to be funny. It just doesn't. doesn't it's just funny thinking of you at home in your pajamas before COVID. During COVID, I get it. But it doesn't change how I think about the the problem. I assumed that we might have an impact on the election. It was a nightmare. And that either decision we made might have an impact on the election. That we could speak and say, the testimony we gave all summer is false. We've reopened the investigation, or we could conceal that we had restarted the investigation. Either choice was going to have an impact potentially on the election. You can't make the judgment on that basis. Then you have to decide well, which one is the least bad of these options. And I hope it doesn't sound crazy to people, but even in hindsight, I think we chose the least bad. I, I wish we weren't involved, but I think you couldn't choose. People have said differently, and I respect that. I think if you really care about this and dive into it, try to imagine yourself in my position, concealing that the testimony you gave under oath was false in this circumstance, when the result might change, and you're being told by your team you can't finish the work before the election. People might do differently, but it's a very hard decision at absolute best. Yeah, you you um, are doing a very good job of explaining yourself now, which is, I think, the important thing I wanted to accomplish here was, and I'll, I'm going to read um, one quote from your book, Higher Loyalty, where you wrote, assuming as nearly everyone did, that Hillary Clinton would be elected president of the United States in less than two weeks, what would happen to the FBI, the Justice Department, or her own presidency if it later was revealed after the fact that she was still the subject of an FBI investigation. Um, so I think that's what you're saying now is, as you were considering, what are my options here? What can I do? Um, you had to weigh that it might turn out that she would be elected and that you had changed the outcome in some way or that you had not revealed the fact that she had been under investigation. Um, and then balance that against the fact that she might lose because you made this announcement. And, and that's what I think what I'm hearing you say now is that those were the factors you were balancing. Yeah, I was trying to push politics out, but I saw two norms crashing into each other. One is well-established norm we've talked about that right. except in extraordinary circumstances, we don't talk about our investigations and we try not to take any action in the run-up to an election that might have an impact on the election. I, I, I've lived by that norm my whole career. Yeah. Second norm is we tell the truth. And when we have given testimony that turns out to be false or incomplete, we fix it. And so which norm should win here? And I, you know, it, I saw in the moment, as soon as they briefed me, I saw the collision between those two things. As I said, I think even in hindsight, I, I wish we hadn't been involved at all, but given where we were, 
I think we chose the door we had to choose. And there's one quote in, that you write in Higher Loyalty, and I just want to read um, it for our audience. And it's basically you write about you know how you knew that this was going to suck for you no matter what you did. And then you write um, from the Democratic side um, would come predictable stuff about you wanting the spotlight, being out of control, driven by ego. From the Republican side would come more allegations of Justice Department incompetence or corruption. And I think a lot of our audience might be wondering if in the future the FBI director gets information about possible wrongdoing by a presidential candidate. How do you think he or she should handle that based on your experience and kind of what you had to live through in 2016? Well, that that director will have the guidance of an inspector general report that reviewed what I did and concluded I should have done something differently. I, I respect them. I think they're wrong in terms of their conclusion, like a court can be wrong, but that's an important precedent. The director will be guided by that with the inspector general's view is that you should choose the norm of not speaking. Inspector General, I recognize that I face difficult choices, but said I chose wrongly. And so they'll have that guidance. I think then there'll be a storm and there'll be Inspector General report and that director will be ripped for not having told the truth to the American people. And then the next director after that, and I'm hoping these are hundreds of years in the future, <laughs> you choose differently. For sure. And you write about, you know, you talked about on this podcast how how to balance like we're in the, we're living in this moment of polarization and, um, you know, hot, you know, politics. How do you think the FBI being an institution should kind of balance that? You know, you want to strive for justice. And this is something that you talk about in your book as well. But how do you strive for justice, but also please the public, which is becoming more and more polarized? Yeah, it's a really hard question. And the best you can do is try to discipline yourself not to consider politics in any explicit way. How Republicans will feel about this, or Democrats will feel about this, which candidate this will help or hurt in which way, and instead lift your eyes above that and focus on the trust and confidence of the American people. Now, those two things, as your question suggests, don't cleanly divide because the, the American people are gonna be influenced by political rhetoric and political views of their own, but as best you can, ask yourself, Given that this institution depends upon the trust of the American people broadly, which of these courses is most consistent with maintaining that trust and confidence? Again, not easy questions. That doesn't dictate an answer. But lift above the politics and try and look at the broader value that underlies the institution. So let's look now at your experience in the Trump administration, where uh, you know, I think everyone listening to this podcast or watching us now can visualize the picture of you as you've described yourself hanging back at the curtain level, uh, probably the tallest person in the room, but trying to be invisible, but getting called forward. Um, you were with other law enforcement officials and for, that for those was watching. You, you, yeah. Oh, okay. So <laughs> There we are. We have a video of it even, um, of you standing, trying to fade into the blue curtains as you described it. And um, that was, I think, your first time actually meeting him. Is that correct? No, I had met him on January 6th before he was president when we briefed him about the Russia report at Trump Tower. Okay, so let's start with that. Um, when you first met him, you were the one selected uh, out of a number of people who might have from the intelligence community, you were selected to give him that information. And what was your impression of him at that time and how he reacted to the information? I kept having this weird flash 
that reminded me that the meeting and his conduct reminded me of a mob boss, of a Cosa Nostra boss. I had done work mm. against the mafia in New York City when I was a federal prosecutor. And I kept pushing that image away because it seemed irrational, right? That's a crazy thing to think. But I think as I look back, what was bringing it to my mind was the way in which he was conducting the meeting. We were there to brief him about a threat to America, about an attack on this nation. And he turned it all into, what is it about me? What does it say about me? How can we turn this into a positive for me? And never ask the question you would expect an incoming president to ask, which is, so how do I keep this country safe going forward? That's my responsibility. And I think the reason it came to my mind, although I was trying to push it away, was that's the way a Cosa Nostra organization is led. It's all about the boss. What can you do for the boss? How are you serving the boss? And that was my first impression, and as crazy as it sounded. Now, it turned out, I don't think it was all that crazy an impression. <laughs> yeah. That's what that's what came to my mind on that it first seems day. to have been validated by a lot of things. Um, I was in the organized crime section um, in the early days of the section. And when RICO was first passed, the Racketeer Influenced Corrupt Organization, and I keep thinking back, and also Title III, allowing legal wiretaps, which was primarily aimed at being able to tap into mob bosses uh, who talk in code. And I, I, you know, we've listened to enough now that I think you were right on target in that. Um, it wasn't really weird, but you had a second weird meeting, uh, awkward at best. And that was when he called you to have a private dinner with him. Could you just talk about that? Yeah. The end of his first week in office. So Friday, the 27th of January, he called me at my desk and asked me if I wanted to come over for dinner. I I had a date already. I was going to go get Thai food with my wife, but I broke <laughs> it with her and told him, of course, sir. And I, I assumed it was a group dinner. Again, it didn't enter my mind that a president would have dinner alone with the <laughs> FBI director. It hadn't happened since Watergate. And I assumed when I got there, I would see colleagues from the other parts of the intelligence community. And it made sense for a new president to get to know the leadership team. And it turned out it was just the two of us and a tiny little table set in the middle of the green room on the ground floor of the White House residence for the two of us to have dinner. And what was odd about it was meeting alone. And second, that he began it with this false premise that we hadn't already spoken number of times, including at that January 6th, right. the first time I met him, and had him tell me what an awesome job I was doing. He hoped I was staying. He began this dinner by asking me what I wanted to do. So it was clear that my job was on the menu, and he wanted something in exchange for that. A quid pro quo, would you say? Oh, it was explicit. He, over salad, he looked at me and said, I need loyalty. I expect loyalty. And I was so stunned by that. All I could think of to do was stare at the man and imagine this across the table, you're three feet from the president of the United States. And I just kept my eyes open and don't blink. I said to myself, I just stared at him for one beat, two beats, three beats. And then he looked down at the salad and we moved on. But he, he noticed obviously that I hadn't answered. And so we came back to it later in the conversation. I was a little bit more ready the next time it came back an hour or more later, but this dinner was about, him extracting a pledge from me that I wasn't on the team of the United States of America. I wasn't representing 
an institution of justice, I was going to be on his team. I was going to be his FBI director, and I wouldn't give him that. And at that moment, I was I was doomed. I, I couldn't quite see it, but I was a dead man walking at that point. It seems like he wanted and got, for example, at the Department of Justice, an attorney general who did agree to be his lawyer instead of the people's lawyer. Um, and it sounds like that's what you interpreted his request to you was not to be um, the director of the FBI for the American people, but to protect his interests, which, and you've referred to Watergate, of course, that was one of Nixon's chief failings, was trying to use uh, the CIA and the FBI for his own benefits and the Internal Revenue Service and many other government agencies. But um, I'm also interested in, and another comparison to Watergate is, Uh, Bob Haldeman, who was the chief of staff to Richard Nixon, was a prolific note taker. Um, For any meeting he had, he had prolific notes. And they became very useful as evidence against um, himself and all the other defendants in the case. But you began to take extensive notes after meeting with the president. So talk about that, because it's one of those things that becomes very important. Yeah. Look, it's... It's a what's that expression? History doesn't repeat itself, but it sure does rhyme. I mean, nobody alive knows better than you, given your experience, how much this rhymes with what happened during Watergate. The president's effort to make people his personal staff, his personal aides, when they have a duty that's far higher than that. And because I felt that I was in the presence of someone who couldn't be trusted, talking about things that touched the FBI, that touched me personally, for the first time in my career. I started doing memos after my encounters with a senior leader. I was not a note taker in my experience mm-hmm. and had a pretty good memory, but I thought, you know, it's going to be important to have this written down with this guy because he'll lie about what happened here. And he has since raised the prospect that there were tapes. And I said, but I still believe, Lordy, I hope there are tapes. Yeah. It would be great if there were tapes of our conversations because I know what would be on those tapes. I walked out of those meetings and I wrote down in detail as much as I could remember about our conversations. And just to make the dinner more stressful, I'm trying to avoid the president trapping me into offering something I shouldn't be offering. I'm trying to protect the FBI. I'm trying to remember every word he's saying so that I can write it down afterwards. Turned out that was a prudent thing to do and um, protected me and I think protected the FBI. You know, your comment about, Lordy, I hope there are tapes. Uh, John Dean was in our offices on the day that Alexander Butterfield testified that there were tapes. And there was jubilation and relief from him because up until that point, it was his word against the president. And let's face it, the president gets the benefit of the doubt because he's the president. Um, And of course, you were the director of the FBI. John Dean was a, a preppy, I don't know, 35, 40 year old. Uh, at the time, uh, counsel to the president, and he would have lost in that battle. So having tapes does make a difference, and notes maybe is the second best thing. So uh, I'm glad you were taking notes. And I still don't know the answer to the question about whether there are tapes. I mean, Trump has said that he didn't, but do you believe that? (laughs) (laughs) You're asking me? (laughs) Trump was a rhetorical question. I guess Trump was a... Um, habitual taper of conversations. So I actually mm-hmm. still think it's possible that there were tapes mm-hmm. and, and still may be tapes. 
Wow, that would be a great discovery. Yeah, for sure. And you know, as you're talking about this, I can't help but think about your time in the Comey rule, and we'll get to that. But um, you know, just seeing that dinner and kept like listening to you describe that dinner is uh, so visceral and reminds me of that scene from the Comey rule. Um, and you know, you talked about you know your time meeting with Trump. Did you ever expect to be fired um, in May and the way that you were fired, which is you know you were in this LA field office talking to agents, and then you find out that you were fired. No, I was totally surprised, and that seems crazy in hindsight, I guess, but I thought that I had gotten to a place where the president didn't like me, and that was clear because I wasn't doing what he wanted me to do for him personally, and I thought that's kind of good because that'll be a cold front that'll keep us apart, and that's what the American people want. And second, I'm running the Russia investigation, so be crazy to fire the person running the Russia investigation. So when I was standing in L.A. in that training room talking to folks, and saw on the televisions against the wall, no volume, but could see on the screen crawl that I had been fired, I was completely surprised. First of all, to find out in that way, but to find out at all that I had been fired caught me by surprise totally. Right. And, you know, for my generation, I think just listening to you, can you kind of clarify how FBI directors are fired if they usually are fired? Like, how does the term work? Because it's a 10-year term. Is there ever an instance in which the FBI director is fired before that 10-year term ends? It's only happened once. The term was created after Watergate, as Jill knows, to, to send to do two things at once, to send a signal that we, the American people through Congress, want this role to be different. We want this role to extend beyond president's terms. Mm -hmm. President Obama said to me when he was interviewing me that this role, the FBI and the Supreme Court, are the two most important picks he makes because he picks for the future. But the second thing Congress wanted to accomplish was restricting the role because J. Edgar Hoover had served for almost half a century. And so they want to limit it, but send a signal that it ought to be non-political. So only one director had ever been fired before, and that was for misconduct. A director named Sessions had been dismissed by Bill Clinton early in Bill Clinton's tenure for a variety of uh, petty financial misdoings and, and mishandling of government assets. But the idea was you're supposed to stay and span across any political um, any political interests of the older of the office of president of the United States. What did your departure mean for the FBI in terms of reputation, integrity, and morale? Because on this podcast, we've talked a lot about how the DOJ has been affected under Trump. But what did what? How did the FBI become affected by your departure? And your thoughts on kind of the successor after you? I think the organization was thrown into turmoil. It was a traumatic event for them for a variety of reasons. The way it was done, that it was done in the middle of a very sensitive investigation, that the president admitted the next day that he that the reason he gave was nonsense, that the real reason was the Russia investigation. He was trying to derail it. And so I think the organization was decapitated traumatically. And Look, I had become very, very close to the workforce in four years. And so there was a personal sense of loss that I felt, obviously, but I think the folks at the FBI felt. And so there was turmoil. And the president, I didn't know any of this at the time, but the president then set about trying to squeeze the deputy director, Andy McCabe, to be on his personal team, which Andy wouldn't do, which de deepened the sense of crisis and trauma. I think the FBI found a bit of calmer waters when a new director was chosen, Christopher Ray, who used to work for me at the Department of Justice and is a really fine person. But the president continued to take a flamethrower to the institution, aided and abetted, as Jill said, when he found a 
attorney general who would act like his personal lawyer because they saw the FBI as a threat. The FBI does not care about somebody's politics. The FBI wants to find the facts. And if you're Donald Trump, the facts are a dangerous thing. And so the new director made a decision. Again, I haven't talked to him about this, but this is my, my guess to try to keep his head down so the institution wouldn't be decapitated mm -hmm. again. Even in the, to the very end of the Trump administration, he tried to keep a low profile. And I guess I get that, but it's time for him to step out and represent the institution because its reputation has been damaged. Mm -hmm. Damaged by things that I did and damaged most of all though by the lies that were told about the institution over the last four years. So there's a lot of work to be done in repairing that the touchstone, which is the trust and confidence of the American people. That is definitely for sure. And, you know, with Christopher Ray now as FBI director, being an FBI director once yourself, how much easier is it for FBI for uh, Christopher Ray to repair the FBI without a president who pressures the FBI director to serve on his behalf under this new administration? Oh, yeah. infinitely easier because it was impossible for him to really represent the institution and respond mm -hmm. to the lies of the president and his enablers. And so he didn't in the main. He would occasionally say things that the president didn't like. There were factual statements in front of Congress. Now, with a president who's a person of integrity and empathy and competence, he has the ability to speak about the work. And the FBI makes mistakes. The FBI is flawed. It's made up of human beings. And so he should speak about the good and the bad and show the work to the American people so they can have trust and confidence. It's being done based only on the facts and the law. So, you know, listening to your description of your being fired on the 17th of May, um, it suddenly struck me of how we are connected because of that. I had taken a course in how to write an op-ed on Sunday, and on Tuesday you got fired. And I thought, oh, I just took this course, and now I have something to say, <laughs> because this is like the Saturday Night Massacre. I have to write That's something. Help. I'm so glad I could be used. <laughs> and so I, I did. I wrote an op-ed. It got published. And that's how I ended up on MSNBC. <laughs> was They saw that. They asked me to come on to talk about it. And the next thing I knew, I had a contract to be a contributor. So thank you very much. I'm sorry it cost you your job. Um, and and mm -hmm. I actually, you're the second top person I've caused a job, uh, Elliot Richardson got fired because he wouldn't fire the special prosecutor. And so he got fired instead of carrying that out. Um, and when I subsequently met Elliot Richardson, he said, oh, I know you. I lost my job because of you. So I didn't I'll cause you to lose your job, but you got me one. So <laughs> anyway, I think this is a good segue when we're talking about what faces Director Ray now and terms of saving the FBI and rebuilding it as an independent, apolitical agency, um, it takes us to your book, uh, Saving Justice, Truth, Transparency, and Trust. And you describe the book as um, a manual for helping repair our justice system. And first of all, it's interesting that your book came out um, just after Biden took office. And I'm wondering if that was intentional, that you were hoping that you would have a president who might listen or a, a director who would be able to listen to your advice on how to rebuild the department? I actually wrote the book not knowing who would win the presidential election. I had to finish it in early November. And I was hoping Joe Biden would be elected president, but I wrote 
a different ending and some different chapters if for if Donald Trump became president, which were really hard to write, very depressing to write, and luckily were never needed. But the publisher thought that the work would be most useful if it came out after the election and either in transition between the two terms of uh, mm -hmm. President Trump, God forbid, or when a new president comes. And so it actually was was released the second week of January before Joe Biden took office. And I do hope it was useful and still is useful. I would love it if people at the Department of Justice would read it and see it as a manual. I think they will, using the lessons of Watergate. How do you restore the Department of Justice? But I hope more than that, I wrote it for non-experts to include some pretty cool stories to illustrate this is what we mean when we use the fancy term institutional values. And this is why we talk about the importance of institutions. Mm -hmm. In plain language, this is what these things are and why they matter. And I hope young people especially will read it, find it a compelling read and, and learn from it. Yeah, it's interesting how publishers look at the timing of this. Uh, my book was supposed to come out in May. And then because of the impeachment, they said you have to finish it months earlier. It has to come out right around the time of impeachment. And so I basically dropped everything I was doing in order to get it done in time to come out in conjunction with, and this was the first impeachment, not the second. Um, my paperback came out just after the second impeachment, though. So it's, 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 it's weird how they do that. But for our audience who may have read your first book, can you tell us what makes Saving Justice different than the first book? Yeah, the first book is about leadership. Neither of them is a memoir. But the first book focuses on how do I think about leadership? What does it mean to be an ethical leader? And how did I get shaped both by mistakes I made and great people I learned from? That's what that book is about. It's story driven, so it's not a boring leadership book. The second one I wasn't going to write until I watched the Attorney General, Bill Barr, and the President severely damage the Department of Justice. And I worried that folks might not get why that matters so much. And I knew I had a bunch of really cool stories that I'd never told before that I thought if I put them in a book, it'll illustrate how I learned the values of the Department of Justice and how I learned the recipe, which is given away on the cover, that the way in which you get trust, which is the essential lifeblood of an institution, is you tell the truth and you show that truth to people. Truth plus transparency equals trust. I thought, you know what? I think that would be useful to people. I've got fun stories that'll hold people's attention stories that seem like fiction, but they're all carefully documented <laughs> that will that will be entertaining and in being entertaining, communicate something that'll be helpful to people. I, I hope that's true and that people will read it and take that away. Um, I want to follow up on something Victor and you talked about, which has to do with truth, really, and obviously a big part of your second book. Uh, in an era where we are so polarized and live in our own information silos, how do we get truth to be communicated? If you listen to MSNBC, you hear facts, you believe them. If you listen to Fox News, you hear a very different version of information, information that I would consider to be completely false, lies, let's call it what it is. But the people who listen to that believe it's true. They believe the election was stolen and that he, Donald Trump was justified in doing everything he's done. So how in an era of that kind of polarization and absence of truth 
do you accomplish that? How do you communicate and convince people it's true? Really hard question. So you begin with a sense of humility that that the, the great thing about the era in which we live is you can get access to information from an extraordinary number of viewpoints. You can triangulate on anything to try and figure out, so what is true? Right? Donald Trump says it stopped raining during his inauguration. Is that true? Well, you can check that. You can go and look at the weather for DC on January the 20th, 2017, and you will discover it never stopped raining. What about the crowded inauguration? Was it bigger than Barack Obama's? You can go and find those pictures and make those comparisons. That's an amazing time to be alive. The flip side is you can structure your digital world so that the only source of information you have are those that confirm your pre-existing positions that, that feed your confirmation bias. So there isn't an easy answer to that except not giving up, never surrendering. I actually think we're living in a golden age of media. Again, not since Watergate has the media had in such an incredibly important way, a job to play in pounding the facts, the facts, the facts, fact checker, fact checker, fact checker. You're never going to empty the Fox News bubble, but we get to a healthier country when you shrink the bubble. And maybe the most important way you shrink the bubble, I mean, look, there's millions of people today trapped in a in a bubble of lies, believing that the election was stolen, believing the coronavirus was a hoax, believing all of these falsehoods they've been told. The way you get them out of that fog of lies is not by throwing facts at them or yelling at them, telling them that they're idiots, because the last thing people want to admit is that not only that they were wrong, but they were defrauded. Instead, you show them what good looks like, what open, honest, empathetic, competent leadership looks like, and they will find their way out of that fog. Not all of them, but a significant number of them will move out of that fog. So I think over the course of the next two years, we're gonna see the Fox News bubble shrink, the crazy bubble shrink, and a whole lot of people find their way out of that fog. It's not gonna do away with the problem of disinformation and polarization, but I think we're on a path. We're gonna have an incredible boom in this country over the next decade, just as we did in the decade after the great pandemic of 1918, the roaring 20s, we're going to have a roaring period right now. And one consequence of that will be, it'll be easier for people trapped in that bubble of lies to move out of it. A Trump supporter came to my home to repair my freezer. And he saw that I was watching the impeachment, the second impeachment trial. He said, well, that's ridiculous. They shouldn't be doing this. The election was stolen. He was right to do whatever he did. And I said, hold on a second. And then we talked and I said, would you please just do me a favor? Obviously, you're getting your news from Fox. He said, yes. And I said, would you please listen to MSNBC or NBC or any other channel besides Fox? And when he called a few days ago to follow up on whether my freezer was working, I said, and have you listened to MSNBC? And he said, not yet. And that's the problem. He's still getting fed disinformation from Fox. And unless there's, you know, so do you have any ideas on how do you get that person to listen to some source of information other than Fox News? I think the answer is in getting up close to him first. I mean, obviously, we're living in a pandemic era, so you couldn't do this. But <laughs> sitting down with him and having a cup of tea and talking about your families, your love for Chicagoland, your skepticism about the White Sox, whatever it is, connecting to My him. love of the 
cubs. Right. <laughs> Connecting to him as a human being makes it so much easier for him then to accede to your request that he tries something different. I try to explain to people, we, another reason that America is an amazing place today is gay marriage is a real thing. It wasn't mm -hmm. 20 years ago. And yet the country changed incredibly quickly about its attitudes towards lesbian and gay Americans in general and gay marriage in particular. How did that happen? I think the answer is because the love was there first. There was a connection first. Mm -hmm. And as, as LGBTQ issues became more and more prominent in our society, everybody discovered that someone in their family was gay, your cousin, your uncle, your aunt. You discovered that someone you loved is that other, and so they no longer feel so other to you. And the turn became so much easier because the love was there first. We need to find a way, person by person, encounter by encounter, to get the connection established first, and then it's so much easier to move people out of that fog. Mm -hmm. But it's, it takes time. I actually think the extraordinary popularity of the pandemic relief bill that's about to pass, I think today, that 70% of Americans, when is the last time Americans agreed 70% about anything? Besides gay marriage, actually. They believe this is the right thing to do and their president is giving it to them without tweets, without lies, without nonsense. That is a really important step to helping people who've been fooled, who've been defrauded. Your repair guy, slowly tell themselves a different story and move away from those lies. What you've said is fascinating. I think, you know, just going back to your book, I think my generation will definitely find a lot of useful information from both your first and second book. Um, but I just want to switch to um, a related topic. You, you know, the rights to your first book, Higher Loyalty, was bought by CBS in um, 2018 and was made into this HBO miniseries called The Comey Rule. Um, and I'm, I'm wondering what it feels like to have your story and that particular stage of your life portrayed on television. It's weird. It's really weird. <laughs> Um, it, it's, I found watching it, I went to the set as a guest one day mm. and it was in Toronto it was the day they happened to be filming the dinner scene that we've talked about. And so I watched this extraordinary talent, these two actors, Jeff Daniels and Brendan Gleeson, Jeff playing me, Brendan playing President Trump, interact with each other using the words that were in my head that had been in my memos. And so I found that vertigo inducing and really, it, I told them like the highest compliment I can pay you is you just ruined my day. It was so <laughs> real. And, and so the movie left me more emotionally drained than I expected when I got to see it because it really does capture the pain, the loss, and the quality of the people at the mm -hmm. FBI in a great way. It also captures my wife in an incredible way, an eerily accurate way. And so it brought home to me how the suffering of those people, what a tragedy it is that they were mistreated in such a way, and the impact on my family from watching me go through all of that. All of that made it an emotional experience for me to see it. Jeff Daniels is extraordinary. I teased him saying he should act taller. And he said, there's only so much they can do, but they captured the essence of that institution and the feelings of that time. You talked about um, you know, your, your brief involvement in that. Um, Billy Ray was the producer of that um, miniseries. Did you have any other role in helping Billy Ray produce it, like, you know, choosing the actor or, choose, you know, giving them advice on what to share, what not to share? He interviewed me and then would contact me to bounce, see if things seem real to him, mm. seem real to me. I didn't have approval over the script or anything like that. 
actually think I had approval over the title. I didn't oh. like any of the titles. I didn't want my name in the title, but they finally beat me down. I was amazed when they got Jeff Daniels to do it. I, I don't think they needed my permission to have Jeff Daniels, but I had seen him in To Kill a Mockingbird on Broadway. Wow. Oh. And when Billy Ray either called or emailed to tell me that they had gotten Jeff Daniels to do it, I was blown away because mm-hmm. he's an extraordinary talent. The person who plays uh, Trump, his hair was so like Trump. Um, I wonder how much went into that. But um, it, it's, it's a great miniseries, and we hope our audience list, um, watches it on HBO. Um, to close off this conversation, um, you know, you're now a professor at Columbia Law, and you know, I think you recognize the importance of public service, about law. Um, do you have any advice for my generation who may want to become lawyers or FBI agents and may look at the world and first be a little bit, um, uh, I guess, discouraged by the polarization? But do you have any advice for us on kind of the importance of that line of work and how to get yeah. involved in that? I'd love to. By the way, it's not my movie, but I should correct one thing. It's on Showtime and not HBO. Oh, Showtime. oh got it. Okay. The yeah, get involved. I, yeah, the world's all screwed up. Great, fix it. Be part of making this world, this country better. We need your talent more than ever, and you will never regret it. I, Albert Einstein used to tell young people, try not to become people of success. Try to become people of value. And what he meant was so many people pursue the smoke of success, awards, nice cars, houses, recognition, these kinds of things. And it's just smoke that people who live fulfilling lives and who in old age look back on a life with a sense of satisfaction are the people who pursued value. They made a difference. They helped people who needed them. They rescued the taken. They fed the poor. They did things that don't make them rich, except in all the ways that matter most. I'm telling you, at the end of this life, you are not going to look at your car and say, thank God I got a really nice car. You're going to reflect on, so how did I help my nation, my world, my community, my neighbor? Do that and you will never regret it. It's addictive to do work with moral content. And those of us who've done it and don't do it anymore, grieve for it. So try and find other ways to contribute. Life is really short. We need you participate. Well, that's a great way to end this podcast. And we want to thank you for coming on, kind of sharing about your experience as FBI director and going through you know, your time there and also the Comey role. Thanks for having me. It's great to be with you. Of course. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Intergenerational Politics. We hope you enjoyed it. We always love reading through your comments and your reviews, so let us know your thoughts about this episode of Intergenerational Politics on Apple Podcasts to support future episodes. You can also feel free to share our podcast with a family member or a friend to make sure that everyone is a part of intergenerational dialogues. Thank you so much again. See you next time.